I've shared this before. During COVID lockdowns, I discovered the joys of YouTube. Now, it's not that I've never used YouTube before, but I would have to say that YouTube now is my primary go-to network. I can watch historical documentaries, rock and roll documentaries, sports documentaries. Typically, the ones that are made by average Joes are really good, a lot better than they were a decade ago. But recently, on my suggestions list, I've seen more and more of a particular video. And it's probably come up because of the algorithm. I do type in some educational topics in my YouTube search from time to time. And the series of videos that have been suggested for me all have very similar titles. If I had to sum them up in one title, it would be this. Why I Quit Teaching. Teachers, are your digital assignments getting lost in the black hole of a digital folder? Can I suggest a solution? FanSchool. FanSchool is a safe and social learning network where students own and share their learning. Think of FanSchool as a digital bulletin board for your students' work. Take a look. Go to fan.school today. That is fan.school. And imagine what your classroom space will look like on FanSchool. Welcome to your parent-teacher conference, where a 24-7 parent and full-time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax. Grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello, and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host, and today we are going to be looking at the reasons teachers are quitting. I'll, I'm going to give you some of my analysis from 30 plus years of teaching, what I'm seeing. I think some of the reasoning are problems or what people didn't realize about teaching that have that has been there for years and that teachers have complained about for years. Others are really solid. They are true marks of concern. So I hope you continue listening if you're both a parent or a teacher, because if you're a parent, it's going to affect you too, because you may see the loss of really good teachers. And if you're a teacher, I hope you continue listening in the hope that you sit there realizing you're not alone. So after listening to the episode, I'm going to try to steer clear of solutions and offer it up to you. Hopefully you'll listen to the episode, and if you're a parent or a teacher or somebody just interested in education, you will reach out to me and let me know what you think the solutions are. And you can do that, the best way is by emailing me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. P is in parent, T is in teacher, C is in conference podcast, 411, all one word, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. If you enjoy this episode or you know of a parent or a teacher, someone who's both like me, who may be interested in this topic, please feel free to share this out. If you found it on Twitter, retweet it. If you found it on Facebook, share it. You can even share the link to the podcast episode by going down where whatever wherever you're listening to it on, there's a little box with an arrow pointing up. You click on that, you hit copy link. You, you probably have even an option that you can text it out and text it out to a friend or five. If you're not that savvy, you know, just getting on the podcast has some difficulties for you. Another thing you can tell your friend is, hey, go on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, type in the Parent Teacher Conference Podcast. It's the one with the guy with the baseball hat on with a coffee mug covering his mug up. Click on that and find the episode on why teachers are quitting. But I really would love to grow the audience, and I would like to thank some of you who have reached out to me and told me, yeah, I just want you to know that I have shared out a specific episode, or some people are even saying, 
I've shared out the whole podcast with friends, and I've gotten some good responses in return. So thank you for expanding our listening community. It's it's nice. Like I've always said, this is a hobby for me. It helps me with my marriage, so my wife doesn't have to hear me spouting off all these educational thoughts that are in my head. And I appreciate that I know there are people listening, and many of you are loyal listeners who reach out to me from time to time and tell me how I'm doing. And again, if you'd like to do that yourself, it's at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. So I will begin by what I did not hear. I really didn't hear that teachers were leaving because of the culture wars. So for those of you not familiar, the culture wars currently are discussions about curriculum or books available in public schools. And the war is this. One side says certain curriculum and books are necessary to be inclusive of people with different sexual orientations. The other side of the war would say that these discussions are out of bounds for the school and really meant for the family to decide based on their own morality, religious upbringing, etc. And that includes the determination of what is age appropriate and also that some of these curriculum or books are too sexually explicit. And while I'm not going to sit here and gaslight you by saying this war doesn't exist or that there isn't really tension between the two sides that is affecting public schools, I would say that most teachers, the majority, vast majority, just don't want to get involved. As I've shared before, typically the political right reacts to like TikTok videos from very progressive teachers who tend to work in pretty progressive schools or progressive areas. And their reaction is almost as if that's the norm. That is happening everywhere. The reality is those teachers like that are very rare. And I think that's part of it. Like a teacher can brush it off pretty quickly if you're accusing them of being very progressive. They know what the reality is they're not and their school's not because the majority, like I said, aren't. So although some teachers might be upset with the tension, from the videos I watched and some of the articles I read, that really isn't as much of a contributing factor as some people would want to make you think. In fact, I can think off the top of my head of several videos that that wasn't even mentioned as a reason for the teacher who was creating the video leaving. The other videos I dismissed, it's going to get some anger if you're a young teacher, but I dismissed teachers who really haven't been in the profession for much longer than five years. Now, there are several reasons for this. One, many of those teachers who are posting videos have themselves become social media celebrities. They're making their living being content creators. And even if they're not, they're more adept into using social media and YouTube than older teachers. So just because there's more quantity of younger teachers I don't think we should allow that to skew our thoughts of what needs to be done or, or give their arguments greater weight. I think a lot of teachers within the first five years are leaving because they were sold a false bill of goods and now they have buyer's remorse. And that's typical and I, I will agree that that is probably on the uptick. And I would say the one mindset that I think is noble of the younger generation is this desire to have a good work life and personal life balance. And they see the amount of work that is involved in being a teacher as greater than they ever thought it would be. And they see some of their friends doing just as much work in their careers, but getting paid twice the amount. I don't think we should blame them. And I don't think we should criticize that. I mean, that's the essence of capitalism, right? Go to where your skills will get you the most return. The idea of mutual benefit for each side. And they're saying teaching is not mutually beneficial for them. They're giving up a lot more than they are receiving in return. And I will say this, the line that people often use of, but you're doing it for the kids. You're, you're doing this you're doing this because you want to make a difference in kids' lives. 
And I just believe that some people who are saying that are just justifying low salaries. They're gaslighting teachers to accept it. Now, I don't have much room to complain about teacher salaries. I work in New Jersey. It's one of the higher paid states for teachers. Um, Last year, I think the average New Jersey teacher made $82,000 a year. That's according to an Ed Week article from April of 2023. In comparison, teachers in Florida, on the average, make $52,000 a year. So right there, that's a $30,000 gap. Now, some people may say that the cost of living in New Jersey is much higher than in Florida, and that may be true, but ask yourself, is it truly a $30,000 difference? So I believe that teachers in states that have low teacher salaries, young people are starting to say, hey, the salary you're giving me is a demonstration of what you're saying the value of a teacher is to society. You may be saying all the right things, like a great teacher touches the future, but by what you're giving me in salary, you're saying the exact opposite. And these videos I watched, especially with the younger teachers, are often from states that teacher salaries are on the low end of the scale on the national average. But let me start focusing on the two main reasons that really go across the board, both with young teachers, but this problem with older teachers, teachers that have been in the profession 20, 30 years, who are saying, I've had enough. So here we go. Issue number one, the education world's faulty view of children. Often on here, I mention my involvement on Twitter. There's a huge educational community. I believe that next to entertainers, educators are the second most popular users uh, and posted tweets on Twitter. And there's this one edu rock star that has well over 20,000 followers. And he posted this tweet several years ago and it has many likes, but I want you to think through, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, think through the problem I may have with it, or even from what I just said, our first issue is. There are many things wrong with schools, and none of them, not one of them, can be blamed on kids. They are kids. I'll read it again. There are many things wrong with schools, and none of them, not one of them, can be blamed on kids. They are kids. So what's the problem with that? Well, I would agree at the first point. There are many problems with schools. And I would agree that most of the problems, the vast majority of the problems, if you want to say over 90% of the problems, I'm good with that. I'm fine if you say 90% of the problems are adults' faults. I think that is accurate. But I think it is inaccurate to say that none of them are kids' faults. It actually is one of the reasons why teachers are leaving is that that view is the predominant view. The reason why I had so so many likes wasn't that it was so profound and people were saying, I never thought of that. The reason I had so many likes is because many teachers have bought into it and are like, yeah, I agree with you. And the teachers who are leaving are saying, that's BS. Children are not innocent. They do cause problems in the school. And at times, we encourage it because we have this view that we are only the ones, the adults are the ones at fault. It comes out of this French philosopher named Rousseau. His famous line is, Man was born free, but everywhere is in chains. Man was born free, but everywhere is in chains. He created this view of the noble savage. Left to our own devices, without any outside influence, we would be good and noble. It's the whole argument. Where does evil come from? Or where does corruption come from? Rousseau would say it would come from outside of you, where the other approach is that corruption is within you. And Rousseau was attacking, at that time, the predominant Christian view in Bible verses such as, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or 
There is no one righteous, no, not one. And it's almost saying that our misbehavior is really our attempt to remove the chains that have been placed upon us. So if you take it into the school setting, this view, the child is the closest to innocence than we are. And every time we force them, and here's a dirty word on education Twitter or edu Twitter, if we force them to comply, if we force them to follow rules, we are chaining them up. We are the problem. The teachers are the problem, not the students. And we see this anti-authoritarian approach really a lot in the last couple of years. Think about the whole cry to defund the police. Are there bad police officers? Yes. Are there bad teachers? Yes. Do some of those people in authority abuse their authority for their own, even just for their own power, their power trip? Absolutely. But what we tend to do is we take that minority and we ascribe that to everybody that is in that field. So instead of dealing with the people on an individual basis who are abusing their authority, we just question authority altogether because the authority are the chains. And how dare we do that to children? We need to start them being free. It tends to see boundaries and limits as taking away freedoms rather than seeing boundaries and limits as expressions of love. What? Did I just say that? Boundaries and limits as expressions of love. Yes, and you know that. You know that boundaries and limits are expressions of love. And we need to, like, I think we need to talk about that more. If a parent, you need to talk about that with your child. And if you're a teacher, you need to talk about that with your students. I, I start the year, every year, telling my students that sometimes the most loving word you can hear from your parents is the word no. In the Rousseau view, no is a chain that is limiting that child's freedom. But let's, let's look at a very common situation that many families have. And I'm going to ask you at the end, did my wife and I create this boundary because we were on a power trip or because we loved our children? When we adopted our first child, we were living in an old farmhouse built in the late 1800s. You know, typically your old box on top of a box, right? Two stories, the ceilings were like nine feet high. Because of that, the staircase was pretty steep. In fact, it probably wouldn't be code today. That's how steep it was. And we were always very nervous about, as our daughter was getting older, her wanting to attempt to climb down the stairs all by herself. Now the stairs are in the back end of the house. Our bedroom and our daughter's bedroom were the two boxes in the front of the house, you know, side by side with the hallway in between. So what my wife and I did as our daughter grew out of the crib and was in her first toddler bed and she was a little more ambulatory, we put up a gate to seal off the hallway from our daughter. That way she couldn't get to the back end of the house and try to go down the stairs on her own. She could only, we limited her freedom. All she was able to do from her bedroom was play in her bedroom or cross the hall and go into our bedroom. In fact, if she needed to use the bathroom, if we were sleeping, she would have to wake us up in order for us to open the gate for her to get to the bathroom, which was near the staircase. Okay, so here's the question. Did we put up that gate, that boundary? Did we set that limit for our daughter because we were on some kind of power trip or because we loved our daughter? So now let's take that and bring it back to the classroom and see why teachers are leaving. Let's go to the young teacher first. I know that a lot of education courses, when they're preparing teachers to go into the classroom, what they're being told is a direct reflection of this view of Rousseau's, that the child is innocent and the teachers need to avoid putting on chains. That in fact, when the child misbehaves, it's really them struggling with their chains that the adults have placed on them. Teachers are being told in education courses, you don't need to learn anything about classroom management. 
Now, if you're not an educator, classroom management is the ability of a teacher to create a productive, positive, organized learning environment for the benefit of all students. And there are various techniques that you can use to maintain control of the classroom. Again, control or change, right? So you have to remember that. So they do not teach classroom management. What teachers coming out of colleges are being told, many of them, is nope, all you need is to create a great lesson. If you have a great engaging lesson, you don't need to learn techniques of classroom management. Because they may not know this, the professor who's teaching this, who typically usually is a former teacher who has their education doctorate, they may not know this, but what they're saying is, because classroom management teaches you how to place chains on your students. If you just make an engaging lesson, there'll be no behavior issues. They'll want to learn. So when there's misbehavior in the classroom, Whose fault is it, according to this view? There are many things wrong with school, and none of them, not one of them can be blamed on kids. They are kids. The problem is the teacher. The problem is you, the teacher. That's what's being said. You didn't plan an engaging lesson. How dare you? That's why Johnny and Jimmy are talking and laughing in the back of the room, disrupting everybody else. It's not Johnny and Jimmy. They're... They are kids. They are not the problem. You are. And a lot of teachers have gotten to the point that they're fed up with that, that attitude. And that's something you hear on these videos over and over again. Teachers saying the lack of discipline has gone out of control. I've seen more fights. I don't feel I'm backed up by my administration. I tend to be the one at fault. The kids get no consequences, so they keep on doing it. All they get is a little talking to. Often, they go to the guidance office where they discuss their inner feelings of why they did it, but there was no consequence. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's good if there's an underlying reason for the misbehavior, we should know that. We should address that, especially if there is truly something unjust happening to this child. But it doesn't excuse the action. Now, that was driven home to me, actually on an interview for a job I did not get. I was interviewing at a high school in New Jersey that had a diverse population. So this was the summer of 1999. And the head of the history department asked me this. He gave me a scenario. It's a great question what he asked. And if you interview people, think about questions like this. Put them, it's a good way to put them on the spot with an actual situation that could occur. He said, here you are, you're a white teacher, and you have a diverse classroom, and you're talking about the Civil War. And this young black student stands up and says, F you, Cullen, everything you're saying is BS. And he actually used the words. Pretty stunning for an interview. But again, it puts you in a situation in a high school setting, kids 17, 18-year-olds could say. And the child goes on a rant for about a minute about the injustice to African Americans over the course of U.S. history. So he put the ball in my court. He said, what would you do? I said, I would pull the student out in the hall, try to diffuse, calm down the situation, who's obviously angry, ask some questions, and validate his concerns. I think that the history department head then kind of said, well, you find out that he's reacting to an injustice done to him by a white student. And I remember saying, well, then I would have to talk to that child as well. And I believe I wrapped it up by saying to, to the student in this scenario that I understand why he exploded in my classroom like he did. And it they had the history department who had been teaching in this school for 30 years. Looked at me and said, that's a great answer, but you forgot one thing. And I'm thinking, I'm like, wow, I, I don't know what you forgot. He goes, the, the kid used vulgarities in your classroom. That's unacceptable. He goes, there needs to be a consequence about it. Because if not, what you're teaching 
him and every other student in your classes, if you're angry enough in my classroom, you're allowed to use profanity. And the student that you're talking to right there and then, I would agree, has a legitimate reason to be angry. But what happens a few weeks later when another student uses some profanity in class that you would say it's not legitimate? To that kid, it's not an issue of it's legitimate to use this language or not. It's the issue of why did he get to use it and not me? So what teachers are saying is there has been an increase over the last few years of profanity, physical altercations, just levels of disrespect to the teacher. And what a lot of teachers are expressing is they're getting a feeling from their administration that instead of providing a consequence for the action, they are being more questioned on what they did to spark the action of the student. Now, I remember when I was in school, K through eight, we walked to school. We weren't bust. It was a small town. But if you misbehaved in class, you were staying after school from 3.15 to 3.30. They didn't even call your parents up. So what happened was you would walk home at, get home by four o'clock and your, your mom would say, why are you late? Of course, you couldn't lie because then you get in bigger trouble. So you told the truth and then you got in more trouble at home because you misbehaved in class. When I got to be in high school, they had what was called central detention, where a teacher could write you up to report to a detention room. I think it was every Wednesday for an hour after school. And of course, if you were an athlete, that had ramifications because now you're missing part of practice. And thus, if you had a central detention, there would be ramifications on the athletic field as well. And the last consequence before suspension was Saturday school. You would have to be there at 8 o'clock. I go from like 8 to 12 or 9 to 12. Never had one, so I don't know. Thankfully, I never had one. But think about it. Without Saturday school, you don't get the breakfast club, which was basically, I think kids growing up in my era understood because we knew there was such thing as Saturday school. And you would just have to sit there for three to four hours doing nothing. Have your schools done away with any detentions like that? Why? Why did we do away with things like that? Now, you've heard of National Honor Society, correct? It used to be that to be on National Honor Society, you just didn't need grades, but you had to be a student in good standing. You had to have good behavior. That's why it was honor. It was honor that you were a good student, both academically and socially. And I don't know when it occurred, but I think it was because of a lawsuit, but that behavior piece was stripped away. As if teachers were out to get kids. Again, teachers being the problem. So now you have a kid who may have honorable grades, but they are dishonorable in their approach to other students and their teachers. But yet they are outstanding citizens of the school. They are honorable. They're National Honor Society students. What is that reinforcing? That grades are all that matter and behavior means nothing. So teachers are getting fed up, not even just teachers who are leaving. Teachers in general, and I hear this from people I work with, teachers I don't work with, it's a very common theme. They feel there are no consequences for the students, and because there are no consequences, they feel that is insufficient support for what they're trying to do in the classroom, and that children's misbehavior in the classroom are not the child's fault, but it's their fault. And teachers see their friends who aren't teachers. And they realize that, hey, if there was a coworker who is causing such a ruckus in the workplace that's it's a distraction for what needs to get done, that coworker will get fired. But if the same thing is happening in a classroom with a student, the ruckus just continues. And then you have to ask yourself, not just what that does to the morale of the teacher, but how about the morale of the students that do want to learn that classroom, who do want to behave? And worse, does that lead kids who are on the cusp when they see this kid causing a ruckus and nothing happening? 
then starting to decide, hey, if that kid's getting away with it, so will I. Now, as you're listening, you might say to yourself, hey, coach, that's been happening for a while. Why now? Why in the last couple of years? And I can just say it briefly, it's the COVID lockdowns. Teachers will tell you, like, I, I don't work in a district where I'm seeing physical altercations happening. I am seeing disrespect happening. And it's not that I've never seen anything like this before. But I would definitely say that since we've returned to full day school since COVID, there has definitely been an uptick. And teachers around the country will tell you this. It's a very common theme that behavior issues have jumped up dramatically since the COVID lockdowns have ended. During the COVID lockdowns, some students were not in a physical classroom for a year, maybe even two years. What did they learn at that time about how to be, be a, a member in good standing of a classroom community? Not much. They were able to do pretty much what they wanted to do. Even if they didn't turn off their camera, they could still be corresponding or playing with a friend on another device while their Chromebook was still focused on the teacher's lesson, even though they weren't focused on the teacher's lesson. And of course, their parents couldn't monitor them because either they were away at work, but even if they were working at home, they had work to do. And maybe Rousseau, in a sense, about his chains were right in this sense. They truly did have freedom or more freedom in their bedrooms taking a class than they did in a classroom. The classroom to them now is a chain that they're fighting to break out of. But unlike Rousseau, I don't see the classroom as external corruption on the child that he's trying, he or she is trying to break free of, but that the limits and rules of the classroom are working against the inner narcissism of the child. And for a year or two, we were rewarding that. Most students were able to make that readjustment back to the classroom. Some students couldn't. And what we're saying here, especially as a seventh grade teacher, is that part of that development of being a member in good standing of a classroom community was lost. You learn some of that in elementary school. In a sense, you learn how to, quote, do school. And I know for some people in the educational world, that's dirty word, right? That, those are dirty words. They're just doing school. But in any community you're a part of, there are rules and regulations in order for the community to achieve its purpose. And without those distinctives that include rules and regulations, then the community ceases to exist. And there's no purpose for the community, including a classroom community. And that is what's getting teachers fed up. They, there's a purpose for their classroom that th misbehavior isn't allowing them to achieve. Now, the last thing about COVID is the addiction to devices. Students are getting such a dopamine rush from pulling their phone ever so slightly out of their pocket, maybe to text quickly before I can see them. Or when they come into my classroom, they put their Chromebook down and reflexively, they start lifting it up. No matter how many times I've said, do not open your Chromebooks until I tell you to. Most classes, I don't even use the Chromebooks, but they still have to open them. And then some of them play this cookie clicker game that they really don't do anything other than seeing numbers get higher and higher and higher as these crumbs of cookies are disappearing off their screen, even though the cookie never gets smaller. But here's part of the problem. Schools are telling their teachers, you can't tell your students, give me your cell phone. That's their property. And that leads to further frustration for the teachers because those are distractions that are not allowing them to do their jobs. And the only ones that are going to be held accountable are the teachers. The students will not be. And that's the source of frustration. Now, I should do an episode on the amount of countries that are banning or considering bans on smartphone usage in school by students. I believe France, you can't have a smartphone in school 15 and under. China has banned it. The Netherlands is looking into a ban. I think I think England. I can do a, I should do a whole episode on that because I've seen some articles, of course, people angry about the ban. But as a teacher or teachers in general, 
I would say that's a good thing. You know, once you know when it's brought up, a student will always say, "Well, what happens if something bad is happening?" You know, active shooter. My parents want to get in contact with me, and I said, "Well, the worst thing that could happen is your parents calling you up and giving away your location, right?" But let me stay focused here on our topic at hand, and that is why teachers are quitting. And one of the main reasons is this idea that setting limits is harmful for children. I would push back with the line I said earlier. We need to get back into the idea of the sometimes the most loving word you can hear from an adult authority figure like a teacher or your parents is the word no. And if you don't mind, I am going to quote from the Christian Bible here because I think even if you're not a Christian, there is great these are great words of wisdom about discipline. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And I think that needs to be closer to the approach we need to have in schools and even within our families. Next, the second big reason why teachers are saying they're quitting. Hey, so what did you think about that first section talking about the rise in misbehavior in the classrooms and partially it's due in the wrong approach of how we see children and the necessity for setting limits, not because we want to be draconian or on a power trip, but because we love them and we want to see their best. I would love to hear from you. Please feel free to email me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's P as in parent, T as in teacher, C as in conference podcast, 411. All one word, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me ways I can improve the podcast or even topics for future conversations. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. All right, now for reason two why many teachers are quitting. And I was trying to come up with a good term of saying this, and I think the best one is this. Teachers are far too often seen as the savior of children. Of course, the problem with this view is that teachers don't have the power of a savior, nor are the people who are putting that burden upon teachers, equipping them in order to even come close. And I think in general, you have a lot of teachers who are quitting feeling that way. First, let's look at state testing scores. Now, if there is one aspect of teaching that has changed dramatically in my 30 plus years, it is the overemphasis of state testing, actually the inclusion of state testing. First and foremost, I'm going to say this. The idea of state testing is to benefit the testing company who gets the contract. Because before that time, I'm speaking probably more from New Jersey, I believe each school district could decide which testing company or which series of tests they were going to use to evaluate their students' progress in language arts and math. So when I was a kid, the big test was the Iowa tests. When I started teaching at my current job in New Jersey, it was a test out of Stanford. Now, since it's all one test for the whole state, Pearson, the testing company who makes the test, is making a whole lot of money because now they get to hand out these tests all across the board. Definitely K-8, and I'm not really sure how the high school... Te- there is high school testing, I believe, through sophomore year. So that's a whole... Testing is a big moneymaker, and, and we can't deny that. But the biggest problem with the testing is this. Whereas... Testing before this like federal mandate to get federal dollars towards education, because if you know anything about federalism, education is not in the U.S. Constitution, so it gets kicked back to the states. So how the federal government gets involved is they say, hey, we got a whole lot of money you can spend on education in your state if you agree to do the following. And one of those things that started with No Child Left Behind under President Bush, George W., And then I believe probably was mixed in with Race to the Top under President Obama as well. But that really has changed the educational landscape because 
Now, instead of the test looking to see, just to see student progress, it also is tied in the teacher evaluation. And this has become a problem for this reason. I have a friend who was a teacher in New York, he's retired now, who said that when they realized their evaluations were based on student scores, it became like a draft pick. The draft, you had a, a drafting your team, getting the right kids in your class. He said we would have literal arguments in the classroom in June of every year. We would learn what their test scores were, and we wanted to spread it out so we would not be, our evaluation would not be based on the kids who are lower learners. And you probably don't want to hear that as a parent, but that it gets to be cutthroat. It's, it's their career. It's their job. And I, I would even have to say that even in my own school, we far too often think thought about in the last 20 years test scores than what's truly best for the kids overall. And I don't just mean academically. You want to say social, emotionally, mental health, etc. It's all about academics. And I, as I've said to you, I think sometimes we think throwing more time into language arts and math are going to increase scores rather than seeing it as the law of diminishing returns. That often, and kids have expressed this, like we, used, we at one time, about a decade ago, we went to a block schedule and you give more time to math and language arts. And you know what students start saying? They start getting sick of math and language arts. You know, it's not, and I've always said this, there, there's a complete child in front of us. Yes, we're trying to teach them academics, but we have to understand that's only one aspect of who they are. We see them like little machines that if we just give them more time in this academic subject, they'll do better without realizing the importance of morale in terms of focus on what they're learning. That's a huge part. I, I believe that the biggest hurdle any teacher has to solve is making a child want to be in your classroom. But getting back to the point about why teachers are leaving over this, there's tension between all courses in school, related arts courses like um, art, music, computers, social studies, language arts, math, foreign language, science. When you're not a testable subject and you're getting your time taken away, you, you get kind of angry. You've, you've put your life into that subject and you realize there's an importance to learn it. And now you're being told, nope, it really doesn't matter. That's what's happening in elementary schools with um, social studies and science. Those classes tended to be the wonder classes. What, what do I mean by that? These are the classes where in history you wonder what if or what would have been like if I lived there. It allowed not just that you're learning what's why we're at the place we are today, what are the important events and people that have shaped our world, but it also fuels the imagination for children. Science is the same way with the natural world. Why do things happen like they do? Why does a, how does a seed grow into a tree, right? It sparks the imagination. But what are we, what are we doing in elementary school for the sake of tests? We're limiting social studies and science. It's happening, it's happened to my own kids. They hardly had any social studies or science education. They, and if, if you're one of my children's teachers listening to this, you know that's true. And I know teachers who were elementary school teachers of my children who were also frustrated by that. But they were told, hey, if you're going to sacrifice something in your daily lessons, sacrifice the science and social studies part. In fact, what they would do, they had trimesters. Two trimesters were science, one was social studies. Meaning that for two-thirds of the year, students in the school district where my children attend did not have social studies education. And in younger ages, in language arts, you're learning how to read, you're learning how to write, the basics of grammar. But don't compare it to like middle school and high school literature classes where you get to talk about those ideas of wonder, they'll expand your mind, the creativity. The classes that did that in the elementary level were science and social studies, and now they're, seen, they're trivialized by our big push on state testing. 
There's a trade-off. You can't do everything perfectly. We are limited people. We're limited in time, resources. So when you put all the focus on state testing, something has to give. We can't do it all. That's what I mean by the Messiah thing. And then you have the other issue with state testing. Why are language arts teachers and math teachers so fired up? Because, hey, I'll be honest. As a social studies teacher, I have no testing. It's awesome. I can teach for the love of teaching. I can teach to inspire students to wonder why the world is like it is today. Where a math and language arts teacher has, you know, they see it, and the reason why they're asking for more time and they ask for disregard of social studies and science and any other subject is because their evaluation is tied to it. And getting back to what we've talked about in the first part of this podcast, students face no consequences. So how does that work? Students know that it doesn't matter their score on the test. They're going to the next grade no matter what. There's no consequences. In fact, I even heard students say, this test is about the teacher, not about me. And I have to be honest. I've told my own daughters that. When, when they were younger and they used to get nervous about the test, I would just tell them, listen, the score for you doesn't matter. The score for the teacher does. It's all about them. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay. And to be honest, I don't even look at the test scores anyhow because the teachers in the classroom give me a far greater picture than any test that Pearson or any other test company can ever devise. They know my child. A guy sitting in a room or computer scoring things doesn't. You have some teachers having great anxiety over this test to do well because they see it as a reflection on them. You have other teachers who are not tested subjects feeling like, what the school is telling them, or at least the government, educational world, the education department is telling them is that their subjects really don't matter and we can take away time from them. So this testing mandate is one burden that didn't exist in my early years of teaching that has exasperated educators. I think another reason teachers are quitting is that they signed up to be teachers. They didn't sign up to be social workers, guidance counselors, psychologists, police officers, agents of social change, and sadly, in some areas, parents. I mean, I've seen the little like TikTok or Instagram type videos of teachers in tears because of the dysfunction in one of their students' families and they're stepping in the role of being a parent, or at least not parent, but the most positive role model, adult role model this child has. It's really heartbreaking. And maybe as a society, we need to rethink the role of the family and support the family more than we do. And, you know, it's something, one of the reasons for this podcast is to bring teachers and parents together. I am your child's teacher. I don't want to be their parent. I have a tough enough time being my own daughter's parent. So, and I think a lot of teachers are feeling this, this burden, though, at times because some parents aren't parenting. At the same time, I will say this, that other teachers, when kids aren't doing things their way, they question parenting. And I think that's unfair to parents. If you're a teacher listening, just so you know, often the kid who isn't doing work in your class and the kid is who is misbehaving, the parents are struggling just as much as you are. And I think that's something maybe in our early discussion about behavior, we need to understand as well that even this child's parents are struggling. And it's far better to reach out to the parent in that situation and say, how can we support each other than to become enemies? Another issue teachers bring up is having classes with mixed abilities in the classroom. There has been a big push for inclusion, and I'm all for that. However, there are times that students do need to be placed in classrooms that will address their disabilities, their deficiencies when it comes to reading and math. You're putting all this pressure on a test score, but often a teacher has to teach in a room with kids who are off the charts in terms of those tests and kids who really need some remedial help. And when a teacher goes into an administrator, or actually better yet, into their 
special education department. And they explain this, that this kid actually needs more remediation than I can offer in the regular ed classroom, even with support of a special ed teacher. Often what teachers are shot back with is, you're a great teacher. You'll make it work. Yep, I've heard that before. You're a great teacher. You'll make it work. It's not because a teacher doesn't want to do the work of helping that child out. It's that the teacher realizes, I can't do it all. And what you're getting back is some platitude. You're not getting a solution. You're getting back this gaslighting. You're a great teacher. You can make it work. The next time you hear anything close to that statement said, I'm going to shoot back with, no, you're wrong. I'm not a great teacher. Pretty much, I'm horrible. So what are you going to do now? Because I think it's time, and, and you can hear the frustration even in my own voice about this, and I'm not considering quitting. You're a teacher. You want to do your best for all your students. And what you're saying is, it's not that I don't want to do extra work. You're, you're placing too much on me. And nobody wants to listen. Case in point, school district where my children attend. In New Jersey, in most schools, it's a school I teach in, this is the case as well, students with learning disabilities can be placed in a regular ed classroom, a supported class, where you have a regular ed teacher and a special education instructor as well, or you can have what's called a resource room. It's a class, typically, it could be for all academics, but typically it's for math and language arts. So kids with learning disabilities that need that the extra time, the extra assistance, will be in a class that will give those students exactly what they need. Well, the dunderheads over in the school district where my kids attend decided they don't need resource room. No, the teachers can do it all within that in-class support setting. You don't need a resource room. And the st- all the studies, I've heard this far too often from anybody I've complained to about this. All the studies have shown that inclusion is the best way to go, Mr. Cullen. Even though I, I cite at least one study, that isn't true. All the, In fact, I challenged the superintendent. I said, no, you can't say all. You can say most, not many. And let's be honest. If you've been in education long enough, you can find a report that will back your point of view. And I would say this also about these reports that putting every special ed child with a learning disability in class support as the best way. I would question the reports on this. Often when you're doing a study, the people in the study perform better because they know they're being studied. So what have you done? Where it used to be that a teacher was in a smaller classroom able to work at a pace that truly help those students who needed out Now, they're in a classroom with such a wide variety of learning abilities. They have to cover, now there's two of them, right? There's a regular ed and a special ed teacher in there. But there used to be, there always was what's called in-class support. And and the resource room for those kids who need a little extra. Now you got rid of that. And you're putting those kids into a setting that at one time was deemed inappropriate for their learning needs. And you're telling the teachers, make it work. Here's some more burden for you, teachers. Make it work. Oh, by the way, we're not going to increase your salary. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to go to special training and make this work. And i got to be honest. I doubt that my kid's school district has given any more training to include these kids other than the first year. I highly doubt it. So they don't have continuing support. They're just, they're just told to make it work. This is not a teacher complaining about the workload. This is a teacher complaining that the workload is becoming impossible to do well because they want to do well. You last as a teacher because you see the benefit of what you're doing. I, I do believe that teachers do work for a lower salary than some a comparable degreed people in the non-education world because they do see a value for the future generation and they want to do a good job. 
But when you have administrators who want to tout, we have all inclusive classrooms, but aren't ever really involved in the classroom and see the struggles teachers are having by in, to give these kids what they truly deserve. Now you hear frustration in my voice about it. And I'm going to tell you something. I've talked to some of those teachers where the resource room has been eliminated. And now all these kids who once needed extra help to, to help them achieve their goals in reading and math are now just thrown into the hopper with everyone else. They have expressed frustration on their administration. But again, they get no say. They have no voice. Because it goes against what the people in the, in the special services department, the director of special services, the superintendent, it goes against what they want to promote for the district. Students with learning disabilities who need the smaller class setting and the slower pace, be damned. You just, you guys just don't fit into what I want to promote on my resume. That is frustrating to teachers. And teachers will look in their classroom and they'll see a kid and they're like, they have such compassion for this child. They're trying their best to keep up and they can't. And then they look around to the other side of the room and they, they see this kid who wants to go farther, who wants to go deeper. They, they do have the ability to take it to the next level. And you're trapped in a classroom with both of them and you're saying, how is this benefiting either of them? And when I complain or say something about it, all I'm told by people who are, aren't in my classroom, you're a great teacher. You can make it work. What teachers are hearing from administrators in that situation is this. Your students' needs do not fit my agenda. And I'm going to offer a reason for all this burden being placed on teachers. And you may disagree with me on this, but I believe there has been a societal shift. We have diminished the role of organized religion in our society. Organized religion often taught behavior and more acceptable morals, etc. But we saw that as those as chains to what expressing what we truly wanted to be. And as parents are both working, I mean, when I was a kid, my father was a factory worker. He didn't make much money, but my parents made the decision that when my sister was born, my mother was going to be a full-time mom. And I don't care if you want to get into the feminist thing. I don't care if it's a husband or wife staying at home with the kids. My point is, that we don't have that as much anymore because both parents need to work in order to make ends meet. Now, my wife and I made that decision ourselves. My wife works part-time for that very reason because we felt it would be a greater benefit to our children to at least have her home three days a week. So the parents themselves have this extra burden of being in the workplace and not spending time with their children, and they need to be there because, like I said, they need that extra income to make ends meet. So the good benefits that religion and family would give to society have been placed upon the public school to deal with. That's where the extra burden is coming from, in my opinion. You know, think about it. When my, the two days a week my wife did have to go to work, and if I had to coach a baseball game or soccer game, where were my children going? They were going to the extended school day program. I've said this before on earlier podcasts. One of my favorite American thinkers, modern American thinkers, is Thomas Sowell. And his famous line is, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So somewhere needs to pick up the slack as organized religion becomes more and more of a diminishing role and the need for both families to be away from the house to work. So children often coming home to empty houses or having to go to some kind of aftercare who is picking up the slack of those benefits it's the school it's the public school and that i believe answers a lot of questions about why teachers are quitting schools are trying to provide the benefits that organized religion 
and families offer. There's a reason why those institutions play their role in society. And there's a reason for educational institutions. And that's to educate, not to be a child's priest and not to be a child's parent. But society realizes there needs to be a place where some of that slack is picked up. So they put that burden on the schools. And that gets passed down all the way to the teachers. And now the teachers are tasked with more than just teaching their academic subject, but a whole lot more. Teachers are tired of the expanding expectations that are being placed on them. I didn't become a teacher to be my student's savior. I became a teacher to motivate my students to consider and think through the wonders of history a bunch more than they did the first day they walked into my classroom. I think a lot of teachers think that way. And if things don't change, we are going to continue watching great teachers walk out their classroom door on the last day of school, never to return. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students, but good parents love those students, their children, deeply.